You're listening to the Midwest Marketing Orange Hour Podcast with your host, Brett Matice. All right, I polled our office yesterday, just went around and see, I tried to see if anyone knew the difference and people kind of did, but not really. And so I need to ask the professionals, violin, viola, fiddle, what's the difference? Well, there's a big difference between violin and viola. I mean, violin is clearly better. Okay. I, I <laughs> this disagree. seems biased. I, I do disagree. <laughs> but I will also say viola burns longer. Oh, really? <laughs> so the, like, is there actually, when you look at the instrument, is there a, a difference in the cosmetics of the instrument or is it just like how it's played? Or because we really don't know. We're like, it's, oh, it's this or that. Or, or is it just the kind of music that it's played with? So I'll take this because I'm actually a violist. She's a violinist. Um, The viola is a larger instrument, cosmetically. It also has the acoustic difference of being a fifth lower. Okay, so it's an octave lower. A fifth. A fifth. So the strings of a violin are E, going from high to low. E, A, D, G. For viola, we get rid of the E string. We start with an A string, D, G, and then we add a C. Okay. So it's a darker quality. It's a darker yeah. quality. Okay. So now to the, the big question here, which interests me and, and all of my family members, the fiddle thing. Is there a difference or is, or is it? Okay. So a guy by the name of Bill Hardy, um, which just sounds like a country name, has the quote that says, people clap after a violin song but they clap while a fiddle song is playing or something to that effect. Is that really the difference or is it really, you know, is there something else? I, I, I don't, I wouldn't make that uh, distinction. I yes. honestly, for me, violin and fiddle are the same instrument. It's just what kind of music you play on it. Okay. So there is, it is that just kind of what arena you're in as far as violin to fiddle goes, but viola is a whole different monster in itself. Yeah. The interesting thing is when you walk into a violin shop, a lot of the time, you, great artists, people like our teachers, they're like, oh, like, let me see that fiddle. It's just, it's really an interchangeable term, but we, violin is the formal term for it. Fiddle okay. is the informal term. Therefore, you know, when you're in the classical realm, people usually don't play the fiddle. Yeah. But it's the same thing. Okay. But, but fiddle music is different than, than classical music, I would say. I mean, just the way that you play violin can't, well, I mean, I guess there are different techniques um, that fiddle players use um, that I don't know. Oh, uh, sure. But yeah, it's the same. It's, I would say it's essentially the same instrument. Okay. Is there like a level of pretentiousness around, or I think you kind of touched on, on it already, that there really isn't, that the, it's an interchangeable term. But I feel like fiddle players have some animosity towards violinists, but maybe not the other way around. Or am I totally off base? Oh, I don't want to answer that question. <laughs> can of worms. I, I don't know it if is animosity is the right word. I think music is music, and that's it. Yeah, very cool. Okay, before we get too far into it, I'll have you guys introduce b- both of yourselves, um, where you are, where you come from, the whole spiel. So I'm Katie Smirnova. Um, I am 29 years old. I'm a violinist. Um, I started playing when I was six and a half. I actually started in Russia, um, and then I moved to the U.S. when I was 10. Um, went to Juilliard pre-college for my entire high school life and then 
decided to go into music. So I went to Peabody Conservatory at the Johns Hopkins University. And then, yeah, um, decided that I wasn't quite done with music. Um, and I decided to get my doctorate also in violin performance with the Emerson String Quartet at Stony Brook University. Very cool. Can you match that long list of stuff? He has way more. <laughs> <laughs> so my name is Brett Walfish. I grew up in South Florida. I started playing the violin at three years old. I was lucky to be in South Florida. I, I had some really wonderful teachers. There were a lot of great concerts going on. So I had a, just a really great exposure to music my whole life, uh, as well as a great friendship circle of musicians. Fast forward 18 years, I went to Indiana University for undergrad, where I studied with an amazing teacher, then did my master's at New England Conservatory, and then met Katie uh, after my master's, and then we both ended up going to Stony Brook together, where okay. I also worked with the Emerson String Quartet. Very cool. What, Where is, what city or town or area for classical or chamber music is like the pinnacle in the United States? There are a lot of those places. I mean, New York is definitely one of them. Um, on the West Coast, I would say San Francisco. LA. Um, LA, Chicago, St. Louis. I mean. Pittsburgh, sorry, uh, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh too. Yeah, there are a lot of those places. Okay, very cool. So what brought you to South Dakota in the Black Hills? That's a very long question. Um, so long story short, my mom, um, so I grew up in Connecticut and my mom, after I graduated from college, decided to take a job at School of Mines. So she's a chemistry professor. Um, so she moved here in 2011. And so we would just visit and, you know, get to know the community more and more. And eventually, um, yeah, we, we met the people at Black Hill State University, met the professors at School of Mines and did some concerts and decided to start a music festival here. Very, very cool. So as people have probably figured out, you guys are co-founders, um, right? I'm, I'm not messing that up. Yeah. No. Co-founders right. of the Rushmore Music Festival. For people who aren't around or aren't aware, what is the Rushmore Music Festival? So the Rushmore Music Festival, we operate on in a dual purpose. The We operate for three weeks in July and we have students that come from all over the country to Black Hill State University where, and they're early advanced students. And we really create a program for them that is tailored to giving them an immersion in their solo and chamber music playing, giving them the experience that is usually reserved only for the most advanced, uh, what we've coined as pre-professional students, students who are on the cusp of going professional we give them that same experience musically and we emphasize communication uh, throughout that as we move to the other side it's our concert series so our faculty concert series takes place we have two concerts every weekend one at uh, black Hill state university in meyer hall and the other down here in rapid city at first presbyterian church and it's our way of engaging with both the Spearfish and Rapid City audiences and audiences that might, you know, come from all over the country as well for, you know, our wonderful tourism community here. And our faculty concerts are the opportunity for our students to see what the highest level of music making can be. And also it's their chance to see us as a faculty communicating both musically with each other, uh, musically with the audience, and just as importantly, in a microphone, introducing our pieces, sharing something that we find inspiring and interesting about the 
that music with our audiences as well. Yeah, for sure. So stepping back to the Summer Academy stuff, how does someone who's interested is, you know, been working with solo and chamber music and wants to be in the Summer Academy, how do they get to be with you guys at that? Well, so we do have an application process that's all online. Um, We do require a video audition um, and an online application. So it's, I, you can find us online, um, but we work closely with ASTA, um, MTNA. Um, we do some advertising with them, uh, but we also do a lot of outreach workshops. So throughout the year, when it's not our season, um, a lot of our faculty will go, you know, from state to state to different high schools to um, middle schools, and they'll give free workshops to these kids. And then we also get a chance to. Um, you know, talk to them about the program, what we offer, to see if you know that's possibly a fit for them. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is there a is there a limit? Like you only accept so many students per you know uh, year. So this past year, our limit was about twenty. Okay. And that's actually exactly how many students we had. We do have the capacity to expand by a little bit, um, but we're not. You know, we're not in it to play the numbers game. We really are looking for. Um, an experience that really has, um, you know, a lot of uh, one-on-one time with faculty. And if we have too many students, we aren't able to do that. So we're, we're trying to, you know, keep our faculty numbers up and our student numbers, you know, in respect to that. Yeah, totally. So it's a three-week deal, the, the Summer Academy. And so if I was a student, walk me through what a, a day in the life in that three-week academy. And you can start wherever sure. you think is easiest, whether it's the first day or somewhere in the middle or the end. So the day of a, the day of the student is fairly regimented, I'd say. They wake up between 7 and 7.30 every morning, have a quick breakfast. By 8 o'clock, every single student is in a practice room. And they'll be in that practice room for the next two hours. As musicians, you know, we can get the most inspiring, helpful advice we can get, but if we don't spend that time by ourselves, it's not a magic wand. You have to put in the put in the hours in a room by yourself. That's kind of the magical equation. But then at 10 o'clock, they're gonna leave the room, and we have, this year we had a Dow Cruz Eurythmics block for the first two weeks, and an acting and public speaking block for the third week. And that was also paired off with a music theory block. Those things all work together. Uh, the Dockers Eurythmics allows our students to start to understand the music, to feel the music, to use their bodies. Uh, all right, I got to back you up for because this is even a term that's way over my head. What is, and I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but Dalkras? Dalkras? Dalkros. Dalkros. Eurythmics. Okay, what is, like for people that don't know, including myself, what is that? So Dalkros Eurythmics is essentially a it's a way of understanding music through body movement and body awareness. So in our course, we have a phenomenal instructor who comes out from, uh, from New York. He's a jazz pianist, and he will improvise uh, music and give students prompts on ways that they can explore their body, explore feeling the beat, explore feeling the phrasing, the dynamics. The idea is before you start talking about what the music looks like on on a piece of paper, you've internalized whatever that musical concept is and you can feel it and reproduce it yourself. Think of music theory backwards. In music theory, we would think, 
of a staff, we think of rhythms and we think of, okay, well, what's that note called? What's that rhythm going to sound like? How do I mathematically draw it out? Dalcroze does the opposite. The opposite. It first starts with, let's just feel this, you know, let's just do this simple rhythm. We're going to feel it. We're going to create it. And then by the way, now that you're really good at making it, this is what it looks like on a paper, on a piece of paper. Okay. Very interesting. All right. I interrupted you. You keep going. That's okay. So, so we have for the first two weeks, Dalcroze, Eurythmics. Uh, and music theory operating side by side, and then the third week public acting and pub- public speaking because it's impossible for our students to really master. Well, you can't master anything in a week, but yeah, <laughs> to to start to get over their own discomfort without somebody to help them and guide them and give them instructions on what to do. So at that point, they'll have a lunch break for an hour, and then all of our teaching with the faculty happens in the afternoon. So from one to five. Uh, the students will have either chamber music coaching or a lesson every day. And the two are never on the same day because that's too stressful for one person. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, they'll, they'll go, they'll have two private lessons per week and two chamber music coachings per week. Very, very cool. So you said you have uh, students from all over. I mean, do they come from, I mean, just literally everywhere to, to come to the Black Hills and work with these world-class musicians and teachers and stuff? Yeah, we had students from Tennessee, from California, from New York, from Massachusetts. Um, Yeah, everywhere, South Dakota, Wyoming, Minnesota. For sure, so what instruments are taught for like if some young student is listening, it's like, I wonder if I can go there. What what instruments are, is it not limited at all? Oh, it is is limited. Um, It is for violinists, violists, cellists, and pianists. Okay, Yep. very, very cool. So if someone's listening, they're like, man, I live in Spearfish. Where can I go watch these guys play? I know you mentioned Meyer, the Meyer Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, what like dates are the concerts for, for uh, not the faculty ones, the, the for the students? Well, our season's over right now. So we had uh, four concerts that were kind of spread out throughout the community okay. for students. Um, our final one was in Meyer Hall. But uh, the other ones, one of them was at the Leon's Ice Cream Shop downtown. Um, one of them was um, at the Children First at uh, the UMC Church. Yeah, for sure. Um, and one of them was at a senior center, actually here in Rapid at the West Hills Village. Okay. So there are lots of ways to hear our students. Um, we try to give them a lot of different experiences performing. Um, it, that's wor- our goal. It's worth noting for somebody who is interested in, in seeing those concerts, I think today's August 6th. Yes. So we'll be posting our dates for next season. In the upcoming weeks. Yeah, probably okay. early, early fall. All right, very cool. We'll keep everyone posted on that, too. We'll just make sure that that info is is top of mind for sure. Thank you. All right, Thanks. so now switching over to the, the faculty concert series, which you touched on a little bit. Can you talk about this, the caliber of musicians that you have? Because I was cruising through your website just doing a little research, and it looked like one of your guest um, performers, or I'm not sure how you were, guest something, uh, he was a Grammy award-winning jazz accordion player. It looked like something like that, isn't that? I think that's yeah. incredible. So, all of our artists are really at the top of their field right now. Um, everybody is an incredibly inspiring musician. A lot of them, all of them, have done some really just incredible things on their bios. I'm not going to start talking on bio land yeah. right now. <laughs> um, but they're all world-class performers, and that is so important to us that we have world-class performers who are also of a younger generation because that also creates for us a role model 
experience for our students to see like you don't have to be 70 years old and decrepit not that they're decrepit. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but you no, know, I mean, good. from their perspective, you might want to cut that part yeah. out. Cut no. that part out. <laughs> um, you know, you don't have to be seventy years, years old with white hair to be a great classical musician. You know, our our faculty are mostly between thirty and forty years old. You also don't have to be that old to enjoy classical music, and that's one of you know the other areas that we're trying to expand on. We're trying to get younger people into, you know, our concerts, and we're, we're still working on how to get that to happen because not everyone feels comfortable you know going into a church to watch a classical music concert or a hall um so we're gonna we're gonna work on getting our ourselves out there in the community um to give younger people more of a chance to kind of learn more about us and explore what we do and have fun yeah totally i think that's like like you're saying kind of like a misconception is that i think uh being a good uh, classical musician and also a biologist those two groups get like oh they must be super duper old and have white hair and a long beard it's like that's not true at all not especially at all yeah if you if you go on your guys website and look it's like just very youthful performers that are like you said mm-hmm. at the top of their game yeah and that, that that's something that's really important to us you know i i grew up in south florida like i mentioned before and i i watched uh the florida philharmonic go under and that was very hard for me to see because here I am living my life being inspired by some of the best musicians really in the world and it brought to light the the false statement that classical music is a dying art and it's so false for for me I believe that everybody loves classical music just not everybody knows it yet mm-hmm and the more we can do to invite young people into the concert hall, the more we can do to show young people, you actually really love this. You just haven't engaged with it yet. I think probably a big thing for you guys, and, and maybe I'm way off base here, but I think a live performance of classical music is very, very different than maybe listening to uh, on a streaming service, where it's like when you get there and you're just in that environment, I'm sure it's just a totally new monster for people. And then like you're saying, some people might not want to go to a church but if they do, they'd be like, oh, this is very, very interesting, and I can't believe how much I'm enjoying this, right? Yeah. Well, one thing that Brett and I, when we were living in New York, one thing that we really enjoyed doing uh, was playing group muse concerts. So group muse uh, is like a, se- a social network for musicians, uh, and it pairs people with living rooms uh, to musicians. So it's literally like you go online and you say, I want to have a concert on Wednesday night at 7 p.m., who can I have come to my house and like play? Yep. And it's BYOB, you know, everyone's over 21, uh, but it's just a giant house party and, and people are invited just, you know, you can invite your own friends of course, but it's open. So it's a really, I don't know, it was a really fun way to meet new people um, and it was all younger people. Oh, like really? it was all people, I don't know, between like 20s and 30s, I would say that was the, the well, we, target audience. We were lucky that we were friends with their founder and the people that were running it uh, as it was getting off the ground. And I think it was a year or two in after they'd opened their New York, I'll say branch of it. Okay, yeah. Um, we spoke to them and I said, like, what are your primary demographics? And what was really interesting was that they were finding that the majority of people that were attending these were between the ages of 24 and 35 and mostly in the tech scene. Really? Tech scene, that was that was a big 
pole, huh? Yeah. Interesting. But the, you know, the difference between attending one of those concerts and going to a place like Meyer Hall, you literally sit like a foot away from the musicians. You have a beer, you know, glass of wine in hand, and it's it's a really relaxing atmosphere, but at the same time, like, you feel comfortable. So if you've never attended a classical music concert, it's just a really great way to experience it for the first time. Interesting. Do we have anything like that here in South Dakota? Are we working on it maybe, trying to get it here in in the Black Hills? It's it's in the works. It's in the works. (laughs) All right, sounds good, sounds good. All right, stepping back to... uh, I'm going to pronounce it wrong again. Dalcross? Dalcros. Dalcros. I'm rolling my O for some reason. (laughs) Unneeded. It's French, so I might be wrong too. My French pronunciation is far from good. Okay, for sure. I noticed that you guys do Dalcros with adults as well, which is probably something kind of interesting since we've been really focused on the students. What can adults expect when they're going into those classes? Well, I'd, I'd say that the reason why we put that class together for adults is, again, it's nothing we do has a single purpose and that's part of I I think we like to look at things on the bigger picture and on one side it gives people who might not be musicians professionally or even at all an opportunity to get to know music on a deeper level with prompts on how to listen and how to engage with it using the tool that we've all had our whole lives which is our body for adults who are musicians or music educators it allows them to get that same experience, but then think, how can I bring this back and influence my students that I work with on a regular basis? And on both sides, we have adults being able to challenge their preconceptions on how they listen to music. And it also allows us through them to influence a greater pool of students. Yeah, totally. I think that thing is is so cool because I feel like a lot of people have that where it's like, oh, if I go to a music lesson, for lack of a better term, it's like, oh, sheet music and this and that. Like, I don't want to do this. Where that sounds like a very, you know, involved thing where it's like you're up and moving and, and getting things done. I think people will be super duper interested in that, too. Um, all right. So when the festival is not happening in the off season, we'll call it, um, you guys do a lot of community outreach and a lot of uh, workshops and stuff like that. Can you touch on where you go, and I'm sure you go all over the place, but where you go and how you do it, and, and if someone wants to contact you to kind of, you know, have you come to a workshop, how can they do that? Sure. Um, I mean, they can always email us, and we're always happy to set something up. Uh, between the last two seasons, um, we've done a lot of outreach uh, in Spearfish. We've gone to, uh, like, Stevens High School <laughs> here in here in Rapid. Um, we've gone to the eastern side of South Dakota, um, we've been to Chicago, Florida, St. Louis, uh, New York, Maryland. So we, we, we tend to look for schools um, that have really strong music programs, or we also look for uh, schools that may not have any music at all. So it just, you know, one of, one of the outreach, I guess, workshops is tailored to kids just who have no experience with music whatsoever. And we'll go to elementary schools for that, um, just to get them introduced to you know what is a violin and why is it cool and maybe it's something that will catch their attention but you know the the rest of our workshops are tailored to middle school and high school students okay. uh, that have been playing for a while yeah totally so what does a workshop look like so you say you go to maryland and you stop at the school do, do you bring all the instruments and stuff like that and what does it look like? Well, we bring ourselves and our own instruments. Okay. <laughs> um, so usually if it's an orchestra program, 
uh, they'll just they'll perform something for us and then we work with the orchestra uh, sometimes it's a sectional sometimes you know they have a concert coming up and they really need to do some shedding on the you know hardest technical spots and we'll be there to help them with that but usually i think the ones that we enjoy the most are where we can work with the entire group right brett either entire group or a chamber music group or solo or, or a solo yeah. player i mean i would say our experience really lies in our passion for string quartets string trios piano trios and and solo performance but there's so much we can give to a full orchestra by using those same techniques that really brings them together as a, as a group. Yeah, totally. All right, well, we're going to take a little breather, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about your guys' background in music and how I'm actually sitting across from two, like, really badass musicians right now. <laughs> so we'll just take a quick breather, and I'll be right back. Sounds, Sounds good. good. Thanks. Hey, guys and gals. It's Brett Matice, the host of the Midwest Marketing Podcast. I need you to do me a favor really, really quick. I promise you it won't take long. However you're listening to this here podcast, Go on to iTunes, Stitcher, maybe you're on our website, whatever it is. Go give us a five-star rating. See those stars? There's going to be five of them. Just go to the one furthest on the right-hand side. Click that one. Maybe write a few quick nice words about us. Unless you don't like us very much, then don't write anything at all. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Let's get back to listening. All right. This one's for both of you, so you can choose who answers first <laughs> and second or who needs more time to prepare. Um, but when did you first realize, like you said, I know Brett, you said you started playing when you were three years old, but when did it really hit you as like, this is what I want to do professionally for the rest of my life? I'll, I'll, I'll go first. Since. So I guess I was lucky because of the background I had at three that I was 15, I think 15 or 16 when I came to that realization. And I was lucky that I'd had the training that I had up until that point where it wasn't like, oh my gosh, this is not a possibility for me. It was, I'd, I'd already been preparing for it and then it was, this is what I'm gonna make my life. Um, but I actually had visited, or not visited, I spent my first summer that was five or six weeks away from home at uh, the Swanee Summer, uh, Swanee Summer Music Institute. And when I went in, I said to myself, when I leave here, if I still love music after five weeks, I'll make this my life. And if I don't, I'll do something else. Is that a common thing where people go to a festival, like really, you know, intense, you know, teaching stuff like that and just kind of fall out of it? Like, it's just not for me. I can't speak to all programs and how yeah. they all are tailored. What I knew is that if I could get through that level of intensity every day for five or six weeks and leave still energized about music and inspired to practice in that case it was practice more actually yep. um but leave inspired to keep on really dedicating myself to it then i figured there was nothing else i wanted to do okay yeah very cool but i think i i don't know i i guess when i was at, at juilliard um most of our class did not go into music the majority uh, a handful of us did but i think I think it's just something that parents realize is so vital when they're applying for colleges. Because when you're really, really great um, at your instrument and you send in a recording, um, you know, you have this list of all of your accomplishments that you, you, you've done, um, colleges really take that seriously. And I think that's why a lot of those kids ended up going into other careers, but you know, 
they were all really successful at it. But a lot of them, you know, would go to summer festivals and enjoy it because they do truly enjoy playing. Yeah. Um, yeah, you don't have to make it your career to, you know, to be really good at your instrument also to, to love music. Yeah, totally. So summer festivals, obviously the Rushmore Music Festival is, is a summer festival. This is a thing all across the nation, yes. Can you guys touch on your experiences with summer festivals and how it kind of, you know, got you started to make your own? So like like I touched on a minute ago, it, it was the long festival for me that pushed me over to I'm making this my life. But I had so many shorter experiences, one week, two week, three week experiences. Up until that, I went to a, some kind of summer program. It was my parents' rule for me that I had to do one music program every summer, no matter what. I could do other things, but I had to do one program. And those were always out of state. That was one of the criteria. And so from the time I was 10 or 11 years old, I had something. And that allowed me to build a social circle, find commonalities with friends across the world from a very young age uh, who loved what I loved. And, you know, as I as I got past the I'm making this a career point, I went to uh, Encore School for Strings going into my senior year of high school, which really set me up for a preparing myself for my conservatory auditions. And then even after that, in the summer times, I spent multiple summers at Bowdoin uh, and then ultimate uh, ultimately, Kay and I met at the Heifetz Institute, which has definitely served as a model for our own festival. Okay, yeah, very cool. Where is the Heifetz in- Institute? Where is that at? So, well, so Heifetz uh, used to be in New Hampshire, and now, um, as of 2012, I believe, uh, they moved to Stanton, Virginia. And so we actually just came back from from visiting them. Um, they have a new executive director and artistic director who we haven't met before in person. So it was great coming back and, you know, seeing that community, seeing some really great concerts. A um, couple of other alumni were there at the same time. So it was nice seeing them after seven years. Um, yeah, but that was a, I, I would say that was a pretty life changing experience for us. Um, you know, we weren't kids anymore. We weren't in high school. I was 22 and Brett was 23. Um, I finished my, so I finished my master's a year prior, um, and Brett was wrapping up his master's or GPD. I just finished a master's. I was going into a graduate diploma. There you go. Um, And so, you know, we we weren't kids. So this was a a festival that we chose because we knew the intensity of lessons and chamber music coachings and the variety of teachers that you got to study with. Um, But for me... I was going to actually not study music anymore. I was going to go into law school and make Man, that... Man, it's a big turn. Big turn. Um, I met a teacher, Phil Setzer, who was um, one of the violinists of the Emerson String Quartet, uh, who I think has done something that no other teacher has done, and that is cared, and that he cared for what I wanted to do with whatever I was playing. I remember there was this um, one lesson I was having with him on Brahms Concerto, and he you know, asked me to do something with phrasing. And after a couple times, I clearly was not doing it. And so he was like, okay, I, th- I know what you want to do. Let me, let me help you get that. And I think that was the turning point. I think up until that point, I was always told what to do. And sure, I was always asked to explore, you know, different ideas, but no one has truly, like, spelled it out for me that your musical ideas matter. And I think 
at that point, I realized that I'm not not done with music yet. So, yeah, that's kind of what Heifetz did for me as a musician. Um, I don't know what it did for you, Brett. <laughs> I mean, for, for me, it, it it connected me with amazing teachers. It connected me with amazing colleagues and friends. And for me, it was really the communications component that is core to their program. Um, they're, they're a program that, like us, we, I would say, got it from them, really. Values communication first and foremost. Um, they recognize that a boring musical performance is a boring musical performance, doesn't matter what genre you're in. And they've made it their mission to empower young artists with the capacity to be more interesting and to connect on a deeper level with the communication that was that's built into the music. I mean, we have these wonderful composers ranging from the 1700s and before up until now, and the thing that they all share in common is that they want to express something. And it's our job as artists to connect with that expression and to share through our playing that expression with our audiences, but also to, you know, if, if it's a piece that needs a little verbal window into it, it's our responsibility as a performer to also help our audiences reach that. And Hypitz really connected the dots for me on how to be true to the music while also recognizing that as a performer, it's my job to communicate in all ways of expression with, with my audience. For sure, for sure. So the route that you guys took to become professional musicians, is that like a common route or is there really no blueprint to it? Or how did, I mean, is it, yeah, I guess that's my question. Is, is it like a common route? Do a lot of people take um, the path that you guys wrote on? I think so. I think we both um, were lucky to have parents who, you know, recognized that this was something that we were excelling at because they gave us the tools. They put us in lessons. They made sure that we had enough time with our teachers. You know, they paid for our accompanists. The, they made the us music, practice. They made <laughs> us practice. Yes, that was definitely one of those um, most important things. Um, but I think for someone who's looking to pursue music, you can't just wake up one day as a junior in high school and decide, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I mean, you could. It's, it's, it's possible, but the amount of work um, that it takes to prepare for a conservatory, a conservatory audition, it's, it's intense. Um, and you have to be proficient enough to even kind of make that call. Um, but there are plenty of musicians who we've met in our lives who've started when they were 13, 14, and just knew what they wanted right away. And, and they're at you know, the same place that we are right now. It's important for me to sort of piggyback on that and say, especially the ones that started later in life, like 13, 14, the thing that they all had in common is they were in a practice room constantly. Like they recognized I'm 13, 14. I'm competing with people who have been practicing two, three, four hours a day since the time they were five years old. And they saw it as I need to make up those hours and be really intelligent about it. Those are some of the most hardworking people I've ever met in my life and the most smart with their time. Yeah, totally. Is there, obviously, like I mentioned to you guys before the podcast started, that I'm more in the country music realm of things, and as people who listen to this podcast have probably picked up that I, I like that kind of music a lot. In country music, there's like a sense of paying your dues, where you like play dive bars and, you know, get, pay your dues. Is that paying your dues, is that a thing in classical music, or is it just kind of you work that progression through the institute or not institutes, through the festivals and, and that kind of stuff? 
I mean, I think on one side, we live in the 21st century. So we have all this technology at our disposal. And that's something we haven't touched on at all here. But during my time at New England Conservatory, they put a lot of emphasis on entrepreneurial musicianship. So what is a successful career going to look going to look like? Because um, there's more than one version of a successful musical career. And I, I, I'm just going to touch on that because it's an important way of framing the actual conversation, which is I don't know if we look at it as paying our dues. I think we see it as how can we become the best artists possible? And we're very well aware of the level of high-level playing that exists. You know, it doesn't take very long surfing like Violin Channel to see that there are some very, very talented musicians who are very young out there. It also doesn't take long of, you know, listening to golden era recordings um, from Yasha Heifetz on the solo side or Fritz Kreisler, Misha Elman, David Oistrakh. Um, and then there's also, you know, string quartets like the Alban Baird Quartet or, you know, my teachers like the Cleveland Quartet or the Emerson String Quartet. These are just a range of, I started with golden era and I moved a little bit more modern. But this array of artists is out there and I've not even scratched the surface of all of them. But they, they all exist and they are all out there. And if we're going to be artists who want to contribute our voice to the conversation musically, there's a level of technical proficiency that you have to reach in order to be able to express that which you're imagining the composer wants us to express. I don't know if that's exactly what you were asking, but um, what I just wanted to add was, I guess in terms of paying our dues, we we definitely have a strong sense of wanting to give back to the community because the community has always been there to support us. You know, ever since we were kids, you know, our friends, our parents, their friends, they've all come to support us. So our way of giving back is doing a lot of outreach concerts. Um, but the other major way for that we think is giving back is through teaching. So uh, when we decided to attend Stony Brook for our doctorate, it wasn't Yes, it's a performance degree, but we viewed our time there as an opportunity to really invest in our own teaching. Um, so while we were doing our degree, we traveled to New York City every week um, and we did a School for Strings long-term Suzuki training. Um, and it's something that I was very unfamiliar with. I took pedagogy class at the Peabody. Um, Brett was a Suzuki kid from the very beginning, but I wasn't, and I knew that um, it's possible to work with very, very young students, as young as three, four, five, um, and I just did not have those skills. So that was something that was really, really useful. Um, we got to study with someone who was actually a part of Suzuki's class, um, Alan Lieb, and yeah, it was just a window into a, you know a world of teaching that I had no idea was possible. So that was very, very helpful. And then Dalcros was another thing that I. I didn't have, Brett had that at summer festivals. Um, but I just, I figured, you know, we have this time and we have these resources of the city. Um, why not use them? Uh, so I, th I think through teaching is probably how we can best give back to our community. Okay, very cool. 
Here's the question you guys touched on a little bit off the podcast, but I wanted to ask it while we were recording too, is uh, was there ever any time where you're like, I would like to learn how to play the bass guitar or learn how to play the saxophone or something like that? Or was it always just like, I have no interest in anything except what I'm working on right now? All right, this will be my first public disclosure. In, in high school, all my friends were in band, so I, I played trumpet. And it was truly a hobby instrument for me. My, I didn't practice enough to have the embouchure facility that a lot of my friends had. I was practicing violin first and then I switched to viola at 14. Um, but I was great at counting and I had great musicality. So I was able to serve, serve the ensemble in that way because of my previous and very extensive musical training. Also, I think we all play an amount of piano growing up because it just lays a really great foundation for everything else that we do. That said, there's only really, for most of us, there's only time for one instrument that we really take seriously. Yeah, I don't think we have enough time for for our one and only instrument. But I guess, um, I think cello would have been my my choice. Um, I know that when I was just starting, um, you know, at the music school in, in St. Petersburg, I was given a choice, you know, piano or violin. And I was like, but cello. And they're like, yeah, we're not going to carry that for you. Oh. Uh, so so I never got to, you know, play cello. But even even now, you know, I, I have a little baby cello in, in my basement. But it's it's a I'm never going to learn it. It's yeah. just something that I've recognized. You know, it's hard enough playing one instrument. It's such a journey. Uh, I should just you know, stick to that and enjoy the other instruments. Yeah, you do have well. the, the multi-instrument people, but they don't get, with either of the, if they play three with all their instruments, they don't get to the level that if, like, like you guys are putting that dedication into one instrument. It's like they can be good at the three, but they'll never be top of, top of the shelf. Yeah, well, I think with, with classical music specifically, and I think that's where we might get our um, snobby kind of, um, I don't know, reputation is that to play the music that we play you really have to get to that level um you know i think some of our friends who play in bands i mean the level that you need to play is just not quite as high so you do have time to explore other instruments um but for i think for what we do for chamber music for solo it's it's an amount of hours that you just otherwise don't have you know that you can split with another instrument yeah totally I would say that the other side to, to on that is the the leg up we have with classical music is in the training that we've received. You know, learning to practice, which to circle back to the festival is something that we prioritize for our students, but it's so important that we learn how to practice because you can't just sit in a room and repeat something over and over and over again and expect it to get better. You have to be very thoughtful with how you spend that very limited time and strategic and there are with my students I talk about brain hacking a lot there are little tricks that we can implement to learn different types of challenging passage work um, so that it becomes reliable and that's where the long historic tradition of especially string playing comes in because there have been really great pedagogues who have sort of figured them out and passed it on from generation to generation. And it is an oral tradition. 
So that's really the only way to learn it and master these tricks. Okay, very cool. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Um, but a lot of times in music, especially for young kids, they just don't get like the level of sport. Like, oh, it's too hard. You're never going to da-da-da. You're never going to make it in music. What's your one piece of golden advice for children who are really interested in it can be chamber music. It can be any kind of music anywhere. What's the golden piece of advice? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna start by hitting your your, your downward spiral thought process. Yes. Which is a Henry Ford quote, which is whether you think you can or whether think whether you think you can't, you're right. You know, if if you're the kind of person that says I can't do this, I can't do it, you can't do it. If you say I can't do it yet, but I'm going to, there's nothing that you there's no challenge that you can't meet if you approach it as I can't do it yet. Yeah, the mindset is everything, I think, with music. If you say you're going to be able to do something, you will. Everyone can. Yeah. Billions of people have done it. You're no different, you know? Very true. I like it. Good, short to the point. I like <laughs> it a lot. All right. Um, we could probably talk for hours, as I could learn so much from you guys, <laughs> but we probably should wrap it up here just so that people don't get too bored of us talking. Uh, they would never but, get bored of you. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. But if there's anything that I missed or didn't hit on that's really super important, just like spread your piece now. I think you did great. I was just going to thank you for having us Sweet. on. Sweet. Well, yeah. Thank you guys yeah. for coming thank on. We you appreciate so much. it. Like I said, I think people are going to learn a lot. We'll get you. Everyone who's listening links and stuff to the Rushmore Music Festival and where they can listen to faculty concerts and student concerts and the whole nine yards. So awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, guys. Perfect. Thank, Thank you, you so for much having for having us. us. Yeah, thanks. Well, hey, thanks for tuning in.